Well, hey everybody, what is up? Happy long weekend. Yeah, it's the long weekend. I know probably maybe on your end it doesn't feel like the long weekend, but thanks for joining us today and hitting play again. I think this is the new intro for us. We say this every week. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for hitting play, but it's true. We're so happy that you're joining us again and wherever you're watching from, whatever part of the home device, you know how the you know how this goes. You could be watching from anywhere. We're so glad you are. In this way of trying to keep us connected, obviously it's not incredibly ideal, but we're trying to make the best of these moments uh, as a community together. So again, thanks for watching and joining in with us. And hopefully this has been meaningful for you. Um, It is the long weekend. It's odd, I know, these little milestones of spring. And yet it's been probably the most unique spring any of us have ever had. So hopefully you're hanging in there and enjoying some time if you have a family with family. And those of you that are uh, maybe on your own uh, at home, we're just thinking about you guys and we love you so, so much. With that said, we're going to jump right into the teaching for today. So if you want to grab a Bible, we're in the sixth week of Easter. Hard to believe. I know I say this every week. Time flies. It's the sixth week of Easter. We're in a series called Tide, looking at resurrection stories and instruction from the New Testament in how to live in light of resurrection. And the Revised Common Lectionary has us in 1 Peter. So if you want to open up to 1 Peter with me, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3. And uh, I, I know from last week, I've just really enjoyed kind of diving in and looking at Peter and his writings and his letters to some of the early communities in the ancient Mesopotamian region of the world. Um, so we're going to read the text. I just want to remind you that Peter, we haven't had a lot of time to excavate the total context of this letter, but Peter is writing to Christians, primarily Gentile Christians in the area, and he calls them God's elect. He calls himself an apostle, and he continually uses this word strangers in the world, strangers or aliens in the world. And I think it's just an interesting snapshot of what the church kind of feels like in exile. Now, we don't have time for it this morning, but there are all sorts of layers to the Greco-Roman culture and what that meant. But I just think it's interesting that he would call them strangers because we know the church is being pushed to the margins, especially in this context. So let's read together. First Peter chapter 3, verse 13 says this, Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better... If it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built." In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clean conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. 
There you go. Man, now this is actually, I think the, the way in which we need to start is just, again, by recognizing that this is written to a particular people. So Peter here, and I know I've already kind of alluded to it, is helping this particular community, these Christians in the first century, in how they should live as Jesus followers under the Roman-led government of that day. And I just want you to understand, as we read this, that it is not like today. And I think we just need to get a hold of this, that the churches that are going to receive these letters in the first century that Peter are writing to are living under persecution. This is what they're living under. They are living under the boot of Rome. And there are all sorts of dynamics in living in oppression to the empire and what, what even what being a Christian meant in that time. Now, can we hit pause here? Is that all right? I don't actually literally mean hit pause. Don't hit pause. Let me hit pause for all of us for a second. I want to take a quick time out and just, I, I just got to get, get this off my back, okay? I just want to declare one thing. I want to declare that what Peter is dealing with here in the first century is way different than what we are experiencing in our autonomous Christian democratic world. Now, our world may not be Christian, but I mean, there's certainly a structure because of Christendom, where that was the norm, and there are many, many Christians obviously living in freedom in our own uh, culture, own country, and own context. Here's, here's why I say this. I've heard the corona deal is so interesting, and then you get Facebook and Twitter on top of that, and it's just like, God, come and help. Come, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come help us all. Because honestly, I have heard recently from some people and even pastors on social media even through what their argument is that even through this season of not being able to gather as the church, that this is some form of government persecution. (sighs) Okay. I just want to remind you that everything from sporting events to concerts to even our freaking libraries are closed right now. I even think of my own hockey team, the Moose. You know, those uh, beer league champion, the Moose. You know, that team that wins the beer league championship every year, you know, the Moose. We can't even get together right now. And none of those communities are actually crying persecution. I don't hear the library crying persecution. I don't hear the mall crying persecution. And I think we need to be careful as Christians right now in our moment to feel like that this is some sort of formed persecution against the church that we can't together. Because our government is keeping us at home and trying to eliminate the spread of a pandemic is, can I just remind us, is not persecution. Now, it would be a different story if everyone was allowed to gather except for the church or for religious groups. That would be a different ballgame, but that's actually just not the case. And I just needed to get that off my chest. Is that okay? I hope that's okay. Maybe some of you have hit pause and walk away or hit stop and walk away. That's okay. That's okay. I just, I push against a persecuted posture in our moment because when you look at the context of this first century church and what they're receiving, our context is not that bad. It's not that bad at all. We have a ton of freedom that our brothers and sisters in Christ that have gone before us maybe have not had. Just wanted to get that, that, that out there. Now, with this understanding and the different day that we live in, my question with this particular text is what can we learn from it? 
Because one thing we always have to remember is that this was written to a particular community in the first century, and then it's actually for us later. It wasn't written to us. You've heard us say this. It wasn't written to us, but it certainly was written for us years and years later. So let's unpack this for a minute. What do we learn? Well, I think there's a few things that Peter says that are fundamental to what it means to live as a Jesus follower. Maybe in that moment, but as well, we also know that our culture has postured itself where the church isn't really at the center anymore. So I think there are some things that, I do think there is a metaphor of exile that translates for us. And I do think there are some things that we could learn along the way. So here's one thing that Peter says. This is what he says. He says, do good in everything. Do good in everything. Look at verse 13 again. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? And then he goes on and says, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Uh, So the reality here, I think what Peter is saying is you could still suffer for doing good, but Christians, those who follow Jesus are actually called to do good no matter the outcome, whether that goes well for you or it doesn't, that ultimately the promise is is that you will be blessed. Then he goes on and he actually quotes Isaiah 8 and says this verbatim from the prophet Isaiah, one of Israel's prophets. He says, do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. So what he's doing is he's using the Old Testament to encourage this community as they learn about the way of Jesus to kind of stand firm. Now, why? Well, he prefaces it here. He says, Jesus is Lord. And if honestly, if Jesus is Lord, then everything changes. No matter how I'm treated, how you and I are treated, or how these people in their current context are treated, we just follow a different king. And we lean in and participate in a different kingdom. And so Peter is adamant that the church would do good in everything. No matter how it works out for you, you do good. I actually, this draws my mind back to the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus uses some really creative ways in the Sermon on the Mount in how people are to live and that certain postures of even doing good would draw the attention of other people. And I just think here, doing good, no matter how it ends up for us, the command is for us to do good in everything we we do and you will be blessed. But then not only that, we're to do good, but we're also, Peter is pretty adamant here that we need to be prepared to share the hope that's within us. That that we're ready actually as a community, as individuals, but as well as a community of people to share the hope that's within us. He says it right here, always prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Just be ready, but do this with, listen to what he says, do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior, there it is again, your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So how do we live this out? How do we do this? You know, being ready to give the hope that is within us. Well, Peter's pretty clear here with gentleness and respect. I absolutely love that. That no matter what we believe or what we're trying to communicate and communicate as a community and get across, that we do this with gentleness and respect. He goes on and actually encourages this group to keep a clear conscience. And one of the questions is, why would he ask them to keep a clear conscience? Well, think about it. They're under persecution, right? Just think, this is not our context. Imagine 
being on the edge of your seat and in many ways being open to losing your life for the way of Jesus because of political powers, because of things in that culture. The reason why I think Peter is actually encouraging them to keep a clear conscience is because there's got to be a number of worries in their lives and things that are trying to come in and against them. Sometimes I think of my own life that I have absolutely no, absolutely no idea what it's like to live in this kind of environment and it's kind of true. And so Peter's pretty clear here that you can do good and you can still be persecuted. He says, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ, you're still living so well and so good that they may be ashamed of their slander. That, that, that's what would happen. And then he gives the mother of all statements. And what I want to do here is I just want to pose it in a question. Peter doesn't put it in a question, but let me pose it in a question for us just to capture our imagination because this is what he's saying. Is it better, think about it, is it better for you and I to suffer for doing good than doing evil? Well, what's the answer to that? Of course, it's better to suffer. And this is actually, this is really Christian thought, like Jesus following thought, that there's delayed gratification for us, that we live in an age of sin and death and destruction and suffering and we may le- actually live into these things knowing that there's a better day coming. So one of the questions I have for uh, us as we hear Peter kind of wrestle through and, and lead this community in the reality that you need to be ready for the hope that's within you. I just think about myself and I'm thinking about you today too. Can you and I actually clearly articulate the hope that's within us? Like, are you ready for that? Am I ready for that? Uh, you know, the reality of living such good lives in and amongst our culture and following the ways of Jesus will hopefully prompt people to ask about the hope that's within us. And I know we're in a world right now of tolerance and everybody's doing good and everybody's kind of happy for the most part. And it may be a little different. And there's a bit of a chasm from the, the New Testament world. But could you clearly articulate the hope that's within you? You know, I was thinking this week about all the things that I engage my life in that I can speak of really, really clearly. Uh, I don't know if anybody's been watching The Last Dance on Netflix, but it kind of chronicles, all of you are probably watching it because it's just amazing. It chronicles uh, the final season of the Chicago Bulls in 1997 and 1998. Phenomenal documentary. I am like so sad that it's actually ending. At one point, I contemplated watching one episode a week just so it would last 10 weeks. But anyways... As they talk about, you know, as this documentary gets into the past and all these things, I can pretty well, and don't ever test me on this, but I could pretty much tell you the NBA champion and the teams that play in the finals all the way from the mid-80s to to, to today. And I got thinking, that's insane that I could like spew off who's won NBA championships or Super Bowls or the Stanley Cup from like the mid-80s. You know, I'm watching the documentary and hitting Wikipedia to make sure I'm right. And when did Jordan win? What years? And of course, the Pistons in 89 and 90. And then I start thinking about Major League Baseball and all the World Series. And I think to myself, I can know that, but am I ready to actually proclaim the hopes, the hope that lives within me if I were asked? You know, last a couple years ago, I guess now, I hurt my back. And so for a couple weeks, I watched pretty much all the Star Wars movies. I was out on my back. 
and watched all the Star Wars movies with my boys. And so I literally sat them down and on a piece of paper wrote out the canon of Star Wars so that they got it and the years that the movies came out and we started to talk about the storyline and the plot and all that's going on. And I can say that verbatim, but can I share the hope that's within me? I think we can speak of all sorts of things, but if we truly love something, the hope of Jesus should come out. I think it's a question we all need to wrestle with. You know, one of the things that persecution does and it was doing for this church, I think is conjuring up this reality from Peter that if you continue to live good lives, even amongst the wind and the waves and the things that are coming against you, you're going to have opportunity to share. So Peter encourages the church to do good with their lives and he encourages them to be prepared to share the hope that's within in them and ready to do that. And then it's kind of interesting the twist the passage kind of takes because as he's talking about doing good and sharing this hope, it turns and he really instructs the church to live in the victory of God, to live in the victory of God. What Peter does is he actually reiterates the work of Jesus here. He like on a dime turns it and he begins to proclaim the story of Jesus and what Jesus has done to bring victory, his death, burial, resurrection, and now seated at the right hand of God, which was this really crowning moment in Jesus' kingship, right? And so why is this happening? Why why would Peter connect really practical things then with the story of Jesus? I love what Scott McKnight Uh, New Testament scholar, Scott McKnight says about this. He says, I believe these verses are attached here to emphasize the victory that Jesus achieved in order that the readers can perceive that if they live the way Jesus did by doing good, they also will find ultimate victory in spite of the persecutions that loom on the horizon. I love that. And I think basically what it's saying is that, and I think what Peter is saying and what Scott McKnight is reiterating here is that no matter what happens in this current age, we live into the victory of God. We know what Jesus has done and we know what he's going to do by ushering in his kingdom that no matter what we face, no matter what this first century community faced with the boot of Rome over, over them, I know it's a, there's a little bit of disparity here because we're not really living in persecution, but no matter what happens in our current context in this age, we lean into this idea that Jesus is renewing all things. And this is what it means actually for this community to suffer. What it means is it means being a witness to the world of even in suffering, we live for a greater and more beautiful hope. I think one of the things that actually persecution could be, and again, I know this is coming from a guy who has not been persecuted, but I think as you look at this community, persecution is actually a gift because it burns away all other distraction. That's what it did for them in their context. You know, I know I've talked about this a little bit, but uh, it's been interesting with no sports on right now to kind of have to go back and watch past series and games on TV just because everybody's bored out of their minds. And it's just been fascinating and, and really amazing, actually, to watch again the Raptors run to the championship last year. And so fun to watch these games. And, you know, it's interesting, the the journey going on again of this journey towards the NBA championship. You, you know in the end who's going to win, but it's those little trials along the way that make it so worth it in the end. Just the other day, I was watching uh, game seven of the second round when Kawhi hits the shot. And I just thought, you know, the pain of almost losing and going through all that they went through in the end makes 
the victory that much sweeter. And I think, man, as we as Christians live this out, as Jesus followers, as we live this out, and I think, again, about this first century community, the things that they were experiencing, we live in light of the age to come. I know it's easy to say. I know it can kind of sound cliche, but it's true. There is a better day coming. This is part of what our hope is. I know I've talked about this guy, Alan Crider, a little bit, but he's really opened up my imagination to the church and to the early church and how they functioned. You know, one of the questions that Alan Crider actually kind of gets gets at in his writing is why did the church explode in the Roman Empire over the first few centuries? Like, how did the church go from this little subversive group of really nothing, this little sect of Judaism, which that's what most people thought the Christian church was, was just just this little group of people that followed Jesus as Messiah, to the third and fourth century just exploding across the empire. It's interesting some of the things that Crider says. He says that they were that the early church was not obsessed with evangelism. In quotes, he says this, the second and third century churches did not talk a lot about the Great Commission. They thought the early apostles had already done that. He also says that the early church didn't use worship services to attract new people. This just was not their goal, to attract a bunch of new people. He says that in the aftermath of the persecution of Nero in the AD 68, churches around the empire at varying speeds and varying places actually closed their doors to outsiders. He also goes on and says that the church lived by the discipline of the secret, which actually barred outsiders from entering private Christian worship. Crazy to think that they basically the church for many cent- for many years was underground. And Alan Crider, as he looks at why did this church explode and just reach so many people over a couple centuries, he actually points and says that the power of being together for that church in a persecuted world was the thing that fueled them. He says this, that baptized Christians knew how powerful the worship services were in their own lives. Early 4th century North African believers said simply this, we cannot go without the Lord's Supper. They knew that their worship services were to glorify God and to edify the faithful, not to evangelize outsiders, and yet improbably the movement was growing in number, size, and geographical spread. Now listen, we're all, I'm not saying don't evangelize. I'm not saying don't share Jesus. I'm not saying don't invite people to our gatherings, especially when we get back together. That's not what I'm saying. But it's just interesting. As this church lived patiently, Crider would say it was like they lived like fine wine, where they fermented over time to compel outsiders into the way of Jesus. And as I hear the story of the first few centuries of the church and how they were just patient and loved each other and were so excited to be together and grow in the way of Jesus together, I think about what Peter is saying here. And what Peter is saying here is way more than a form of moralism for the church to do better. What he's actually calling the church to is he's calling the church to a way of life in the kingdom. I think what Crider actually picks up later about the history of the church, really what they were doing is they were modeling what Peter was writing in his letter here. Do good, be ready to share the hope with other people when they ask, and live in the victory of God. That's it. Do good. Do good with your life. Not to earn something or try and climb a ladder. Do good because you follow the king of the universe. Be ready to share. Be ready to share the hope that's within you and live in the victory of God. Ultimately, live 
from the posture of victory, knowing what Jesus has done and what he's going to do. I think this is what Peter is calling us to. Now, with that said, over these weeks, as we kind of end our series tied, we want to just leave you before we go back into worship with some questions. And I think there's some questions that we just need to reflect on here in the next couple of minutes before the guys come back and lead us uh, in worship from their living rooms. A few questions for us, just to just think on these and reflect on these with me. Am I doing good in everything I do? Not a sense of moralism, not a sense of trying to be better, but am I living out the goodness of God in my life? Am I ready to share the hope that's within me with others? I know we've posed that today, but think through it. Am I living in light of God's victory? Do I understand? Is it deep in my bones that no matter what I go through in this moment, there's a better day coming? And how do these things change my life? Why don't we reflect together before we sing?